the Askell Business Brunch. Hello and welcome to the Business Brunch podcast. My name's Hayley Dunn and I'm Askell's Business Leadership Specialist. And I'm Julia Harden and I'm Askell's Funding Specialist. And you'll notice today that we are missing one of the trio. So unfortunately, Louise Hatswell isn't joining us today and that is for a very, very good reason. So at the moment, Louise is absolutely steeped in the evidence for the STRB and the IWPRB. For, for those of you who know about that, you'll know that's the uh, the pay review bodies. So Louise is working very, very hard on that at the moment. So she won't be joining us, but I'm sure she'll be back with us next month. So what we thought we'd focus our conversation on uh, this time is to talk a little bit about some of our reflections from annual conference now. I don't know about you, Julia, but if you see that somebody's been to an event and they're absolutely going on and on about how amazing it is, it can sound a bit tedious. But I thought perhaps what we could do is because both of us did some sessions and had some fantastic conversations that actually we could unpack a little bit some of those conversations and some of that sort of further learning that we've had from our sessions to sort of give people a flavour of the sorts of things that we've been talking about. Oh, yes, I think that sounds an excellent idea because, yes, I agree with you. Sometimes it is a bit tedious, but I think... I think certainly from my point of view, my own learning has developed even on my own subject from the conversations that I've had with delegates. So um, if we're able to share some of that, I think that would be great. I think that'd be fantastic because I think we've both got into some, some quite meaty topics and some quite meaty discussions. So I think it'd be really, really great to unpack that a little bit. So um, if we start with yours, Julia, could you tell us a little bit about the, the workshop panel that you did and why you chose that as a subject? Certainly can. So I did my my session was was named. Uh, Let's talk about general annual grant pooling or gag pooling, which um, is doesn't trip off the tongue lightly. Um, but it's about the pooling of uh, resources in, across an academy trust and and pooling income. Um, and the reason that I thought it was it would be useful to, to have conversations about it is that because it's becoming very clear now the government's um, policy direction in terms of schools working in families or in fact they're saying you know schools becoming part of a trust and yet this gag pooling is is billed as one of the greatest freedoms uh, to open to multi academy trusts and yet. There are less than 15% of the trusts uh, current, that, are, that are currently um, are going concerns in, in England that have uh, gag pooled, if you like, that, that pool of their income. So it makes me think, why is that? What, you know, what is the reason for that? And I think we need to start the conversation um, going. I mean, if you think there are more than three quarters of secondary schools that are um, academies or in, um, in academy trusts, so more than one, um, more than one academy, um, and I think something like four in ten primary schools. So there's a heck of a lot of our schools already involved in trusts, and yet this very small proportion um, have taken the plunge and gone to gag pooling. So that's why I wanted to do it. So just to unpack that a little bit, I mean, because this is something you've been you've been looking at for a little while. What are some of the common myths that you're hearing about pooling of resources? Um, yes, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think I think there are I think it's about myths about the process. But I also think there is um, some a, a level of confusion which is driven by um, the, the language around gag pooling which I think can be a little bit confusing at times um, and I think 
you know, the, the rules around gag crawling. I think that's one of the myths that it, that it seems, you know, it, it appears to be something that's really quite restricted. And in actual fact, there are very few rules. Um, now, I think that's both a blessing and a curse because for a certain group of uh, trusts, that will be an opportunity to really drive forward this process and this freedom and an opportunity to form uh, and make the rules, if you like. But for another uh, group um, of, of organisations, it, it will be a reason not to go ahead because they're unsure, perhaps, about the implications um, of what it is that they're, they're going to be letting themselves into. So I think, I think that um, the fact that, you know, the, this misunderstanding of, of the rules or, or that there aren't any is one. And I think um, another is that that you would do as a trust you would tend to do this purely for the reasons of um, gaining financial efficiencies or econom financial economies of scale and I think that's really unfortunate because actually whilst financial uh, efficiencies will often follow this as this as a process as a policy intention as with any other policy really in school should be driven by school improvement and that should be first and there are lots of good examples if you get talking to trust leaders which i have done uh, as part of this um bit of research lots of excellent examples um of of school improvement that have been enabled by the pooling of of the gag income at, at the outset it sounds i mean I mean, you and I are both are steeped in academisation policy and there's so much, particularly within finance and accounting, that is very, very prescriptive. So uh, the, the findings and that the requirements within the Academy Trust Handbook, within the Academy Accounts Direction. This feels like one of those um, probably minority areas where it's more descriptive than prescriptive. Would you agree? Absolutely, that's a very good way of very good way of describing it. Um, and as I say, I you know I, I think that's both a blessing and a curse. But let's sort of jump on the to, to take it as a blessing. So, for example, there are there are a handful of different ways that you could um, redistribute funding because effectively that's that's what you're doing. Um, there are a handful of different ways you could do it, um, depending on context your school improvement journey, um, the, you know, the, the geographical spread of your children, all sorts of things. The context, as with so many things that we talk about, is so important. And if, if I may, I'll just, just sort of give you a, a flavour of the different types of things. So in any, in any gag pooling situation, that there is the, the underlying um, uh, rule rule so there is a rule there the the underlying rule is that every school must be funded according to need so regardless of of how you take the money in and, and what methodology you use to distribute it it must take account of the needs of a school so already there you've got an opportunity to look at it from a curriculum-led planning approach for example so that might mean that you know a school uh, with similar numbers of of pupils, but with um, different um, different places in their school improvement, different outcomes, etc. School A might really benefit from having 
more teachers than their own budget says they can afford, whereas another school down the road for one year may, may be able to manage very, very well within their curriculum framework with um, one less teacher, for example. So that's, that's um, you know, you, and you would review it every year. So we're not, we're not supporting a, a principle of winners and losers more than we are all in this together. Let's see how we can... Uh, most efficiently and effectively get all our schools to where they need to be. So that would be one. Um, pooling of reserves is another option, very emotive. And again, really, we really need to get conversations going around this because if we don't get the conversations going, we'll never move forward um, with it. Um, pooling of reserves allows greater levels of investment across the trust. That works for, for some trusts. Um, and, and then sort of the the most complete, I suppose, general annual grant pooling is, is where the trust has its own formula for redistribution. So you're mitigating all the risks of um, the soft national funding formula and the variances that, are, that exist across the country, for example. So, and, you know, and, and there are other, other ways to a greater or lesser degree that, that you can you could um, begin this process. So... You know, that's what we're trying to say. Get talking about it and get talking about the options that would work um, or work out the ones that wouldn't work, which is also important. I agree. And I think this feels to me, um, and, and I think you had you had two fantastic speakers who joined you on your panel who were at different points of, of their own journeys um, within their trust leadership teams and with their, with their schools on this journey. And it feels like quite a thorny issue. And... I wonder uh, whether there's perhaps at time a, a little bit of conflict and whether people just don't feel comfortable to be um, asking questions or they're a little bit of afraid to ask questions. But I just wonder if you could perhaps share some thoughts on what do you think are the questions that they should be asking to make this the most sort of um, uh, fruitful conversation that it can be? Okay. Um, yeah, and just to completely agree with you, I was very lucky on the, the panel that I had um, Steve Howell and Tim Coulson joined me in the session um, and I think f it was great to be able to hear their own story. They speak really well anyway um, and they are at different places on the, on the gag pooling journey um, and I think it was, you know, it was beneficial for people to hear real life experience rather than just you know, all the theory. Um, so that was a, a great opportunity um, for us, I think. But in terms of the questions, yes, you're right. I think... I think there's an awful lot about transparency um, and co-construction. And so therefore, it isn't, it, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's a, a really very much a free-flowing conversation that needs to go on between perhaps um, heads of school at the constituent academies, but the trust uh, leadership must be presenting, um, of, you know, an open approach to this because I say this, this co-construction idea, which is being able to ask questions from a school's perspective. So, what is it that we can expect to benefit from if we go towards this this gag pooling situation? And equally, what is it that the trusts are going to expect of us um, as we pool all our income? together so what is our policy going to look like um, and then uh, you know that's absolutely crucial and understanding what the 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 gag pooling policy will be so there needs to be lots of time to answer lots of questions about that i think um 
there are very important questions about an appeals process that needs need to be worked through because if you set up gag pooling you have to have an appeals process and everybody that's party to that policy needs to feel comfortable and understand how that works whether you are able to manage it internally or whether it really needs to be independent um, and you've got to work through all those options um, one of the uh, the the risks to effective gag pooling is this idea, this perception of winners and losers, which I think I've mentioned already. So being able to properly understand this is not about winners and losers. OK, so why isn't it about winners and losers? If I'm a school lead, it might feel like that to me. What is it that that that, that will put my mind at rest? So some fairly I think I think actually to start with, it is the theoretical questions. And then once you get talking about the policy, that's when you can really understand some of the operational processes that go on. But there, there should be no secrets, as with any any um, open policy document. I think that's probably one of the key things that, that I took away from, from listening to, to both you speak and the two speakers was about that transparency in the process. And one of your speakers was talking about... Um, time being an important factor as well so um, they were part way on their journey they were talking about how they've um, they've brought gag pooling in as a proposal but they're doing it on the basis of sort of redistributing potentially in the future and they said if or when that happens they'll give it time that 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 to me and I, and I wonder if there are other sort of um, whether there's any other sort of areas where there's perhaps misunderstanding or, or where that sort of communication piece would be would be vitally important as part of this. Yes, most definitely. That was very interesting to hear, wasn't it? Because that, that really, I, I think, typifies the, the, the good practice approach to, OK, let's talk about this, let's get a proposal, let's everybody agree it. And I, I think it's taken them time to get to this point. But actually, in the short term, we will gag pool, but we will continue to distribute the money according to your individual budgets. Because let's wait next. Let's wait until we're all very comfortable with this as a process and have a trust in it, and then we can move on to the next stage. And I think that's, um, as you say, I think it, it's a really important um, feature of the process. But I also think it really engenders this spirit of organizational culture you know where, where there's a sort of there's there's an easy question isn't there which we all know the ethically correct answer so the question is are, are we all responsible for all the children and young people across our trust or am I responsible for the children and young people that are on my site uh, as in building so I think you know we we, it should the, the the answer to the question should be the former, but really everybody has got to really believe in that and feel valued and supported in taking that approach. And I, I think the way that that trust have gone about it will engender that sort of approach because there's, there's, there can be no feeling of this is being done to you. I completely agree, Julia, and I think you've, you've already talked about how important that appeals process is within it as well. Yeah. I think when I was thinking about it, that was one of my first questions was actually if, if I was in a constituent school and I'm thinking I'm really not happy that I'm going to lose £50,000 from my budget and it's going to go to another school, what's, what's my recourse of action there? What, what, what options are, 
uh, open to me so I think that sounds like it's really really important and we've already talked a little bit about how um, it's sort of it's very much it's it's descriptive than prescriptive but are there any particular red lines that trust leaders to be aware of I was thinking for example um, thinking about uh, ring fence money so for example pupil premium grants can you pull all of your money or are or are trusts very much looking just at their general annual grant? Are they looking at their capital funding? Um, perhaps unpacking that a little bit. Mm, okay, yeah, yes, very, very good point. So for larger trusts, and this is, this is interesting um, on, a, on a bigger picture side, um, scale, I think, because for larger trusts, they will already be receive, receiving capital um, according to a school's condition allocation so they will be the trust will get capital for uh, to, to manage the estates of all the schools in their trust if they're five schools or three thousand pupils and or three thousand pupils so that is there's there's a, a precedent set for pooling of school funding already so those trusts are are already experienced to a greater or lesser degree in managing that redistribution to the best interests of all the schools um, and, and children and young people across their trust. So there has got to be a question about, so how different is this for revenue funding? Um, and, you know, to, to realise that we're already part way there. And I, in terms of what can be pooled, GAG, uh, all of GAG, uh, except um, there are some very specific lines of income, like PFI income, for example, can't be pulled. But I do, I do know that there are some trusts that have not gone down the GAG pooling route, but have, for example, pulled um, their recovery funding, their COVID recovery funding. Um, and that was born out of necessity, but also um, a, a, a greater collaboration that became necessary as we move through the pandemic, um, and it became it became clear that there were some schools in greater need than others. So they redistributed their COVID funding. So yes, it's it's perfectly possible. Pupil premium, anecdotally, I think is less likely, certainly currently, to be pulled because it's very it's very reactive to the characteristics of the young people in a particular context. Um, but there's no, I don't think there's anything to say that it couldn't be, um, you know, if, if schools are pulling their recovery premium. Yeah, you know, this is one of the sort of, say, the freedoms of it. Um, but very, very clearly, one of the big discussion points that needs to go on so that schools are very, very clear about which elements of their funding are going to be retained according to central distribution and which areas of funding may be impacted by trust localised distribution. So if, if we've got anybody listening, Julia, because I think we've talked about lots of, of elements of it there that, that are really, really interesting. If there, if there are trust leaders who are just starting out on this journey, sort of what are the key pieces of advice from the, the research that you've done, do you think are absolutely sort of fundamental to, to making, um, sort of making it a very positive step on this, on that sort of journey before they set out? Okay, yeah. I think um, number one is to remember that in a, in a multi-academy trust, you are starting from the, the standpoint that legislatively, the, all the money that each of your schools attracts belongs to the trust. So that's a point worth making in all of these dis, dis, discussions that you're having. So that's the starting point. Beyond that, there are two things. There's a set of practical considerations 
around things like capacity to take on the process, the time it's going to take, the impact on the scheme of delegation, how you're going to communicate change, which is absolutely vital because we've all seen really good change management projects derailed by poor communication. So don't underestimate that. So that set of practical considerations and then have a plan and have a plan that is managed by the right team because you will need a range of expertise um, in all areas of school life, I think, to do this properly. Um, and it will probably be a multi-year plan that you're looking at. Um, and final point, you need to try and create some a, a flexible structure um, that's got, um, and in my notes, I've got, and I'm just going to read, with friendly feedback loops, because I think that's really, really important. There's got to be capacity for feedback. I think it's absolutely fascinating, Julie. And I think um, I think it's something we're going to keep coming back to, isn't it? I think it was it was noticeable the, the number. I mean, you had a you had a full room at that session, so there were lots of people that were interested in it. There were people asking some very um, thoughtful and contextual questions. Um, and I think probably a little bit of relief at hearing from the speakers saying, do you know what? We haven't got this completely sorted. We're on a journey. We're learning from each other. We're talking about this. We want to talk about this with you. And mm. actually feeling that there's some, um, there's some good practice developing from within the sector um, with, with trust collaborating with each other as, as they're on that, that journey. Absolutely. I mean, one thing we know is that views on this are still quite polarised and that's OK because we need challenge. We always need challenge. But what we also know is that ministers like the freedom of gag pooling and it is very likely to continue even to the point that we get a, um, a direct national funding formula. So we really, really need to encourage our trust leaders to start talking about this and having the conversations um, and, and making sure that, that they are making informed decisions about this in their own time. And I think that's fascinating for us as specialists, is it, as policy specialists, because so much of our work is looking at either the, the policy that is, that is out there or the policy that's in development and supporting with constructive feedback. So I think to be having these discussions about something that could be quite... Um, fundamentally and, and intrinsically linked to um, the growth of trusts and and um, I, I know I, I really hate the word but they keep talking about strong trusts. I don't I don't know what the word <laughs> strong means to me it doesn't mean anything but I think um, I, I think as we think of it more about effective working good working practices transparent ethical working practices this is one of those topics that I'm fascinated to keep um, hearing from you on this as 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 the as the practice and the policy develops yes thank yes thank I absolutely agree and, and you know if if there is anybody that's listening to this that is any way through this uh through this process or hasn't started thinking about it but thinks their trust ought to then please do get in touch with us because it, we would really um benefit from from hearing your views or your concerns and seeing if we can address any of those and equally you don't even have to be um currently in a multi-academy trust because you know we we are being very open about the policy direction now so you know it's never too soon you understand what all aspects of of you know the the the, the landscape and pooling of gag income is is a feature that is is going to um 
be there for some time. Okay, Hayley, that was quite a lot about my workshop, which you attended. Um, uh, you supported me, and thank you very much for that. Um, so I'd like um, to ask you now some questions about your workshop panel, please, and, and why you chose that as a subject. Oh, I'm going to take it just a second, Julia, just to gush a little bit and just to say how wonderful it was to be <laughs> Feel free. The, I promise I'll put it back in the bottle in a minute, but just to gush a little bit about just how amazing it was to be to be back in person. Uh, I think we had about a thousand uh, delegates there with us and oh my gosh, it was just amazing. And, and I took so many notes away and I've been emailing people and following up on things afterwards. So yeah, it's really exciting just to have uh, the opportunity just to to carry on that conversation because it, it it was and I really love a panel style workshop and and that's we see as the job that we do we see so many fantastic speakers but what I love about a panel session is that you can you can interact so much more with the audience and get very immediate feedback on whether you're talking about the right sort of things that they're interested in how they're feeling about it so. It was really great to, to do a session that was based on schools resource management. So my panel was called How to Unlock Potential with Smart Strategies for Resource Deployment, which sounds much grander than it is. But we were talking about the school's resource management tools and how they're working, uh, what's working effectively and what's uh, not working effectively. And it was absolutely fantastic to be, to be part of the panel and to hear from the fellow panellists and to hear from the audience as well. Really lovely um, to see that we probably had about half of the audience was business leaders, which was it was it was great to be amongst um, amongst business leaders. And I felt we had a really really great debate, and we got into so many thorny issues. We were talking about things like financial data, and that included looking at benchmarking, transparency of information, interpretation by parents and governors, and the contextual understanding, outlying factors limitations and then I think the big one is um, accountability as well um, and that sort of sometimes that there's there's information that we submit to the department and it comes back out to us as, as transparency data or that the the department is looking at and I think it can feel a little bit like um, a, a bit a little bit like that sort of football manager syndrome that you're being that you're being judged all the time and you'll you'll never know whether when you're the, about to be the person that's going to be sacked because I think sometimes school leaders feel so so much responsibility from the the high levels of accountability whether that's through um, Ofsted whether it's through um, if you're one of those trusts that's experienced a financial notice to improve sometimes uh, I think that that, that level of, of scrutiny is really really felt by our school and college leaders um, and I think one of the things that we wanted to do as well was to unpack what's meant by schools resource management because it's become a very big feature within the Department for Education. There's, there's a, um, a, a whole sort of portfolio of people at the department working on schools resource management and there's a number of um, tools and guidance pieces that, that come under that umbrella so it was good to unpack that a little bit. So looking at things like the uh, school's resource management advisor program the tools and the guidance so things like the school's financial benchmarking and the more recently introduced view my view my financial insights tool then there's things like and i know this is absolutely your bag julia but the things like the planning and the workforce management and the integrated curriculum financial uh, planning tools there's the teacher vacancy service there's things like uh, resources for purchasing goods and services. 
So we've got the, uh, the newly launched um, buying guidance for schools and there's a team that are now supporting with, with help and guidance and the DfE approved frameworks. I think there's something like 52 frameworks now that they hold on the portal. Uh, there's the risk protection arrangement, which you might know as the RPA, as an alternative to commercial insurance. And we've seen that expanding um, that in future iterations, that's going to have um, cyber security included with it. We've got the whole suite of good estate management for schools tools, which you might know as the GEMS tools. We've got the programme of free webinars that the DfE have been supporting. We've got the tools for governors, and that's things like the top 10 planning checks for governors, the governance handbook and the competency framework. Um, and then finally, things like the, the more recently launched, the digital resources through the EdTech demonstrator programme. So, and I think sometimes people don't realise that, that all of those tools and all of those guidance pieces come under one sort of portfolio within the department and just how much um, that, it's, that it's grown over time. So I think it was really useful to unpack that a little bit. It, it certainly was. I mean, I was lucky enough to to hear some of the the discussion that was that was going on, and a couple of things um, that that really sort of hit me. It, there is a, a breadth of uh, of guidance and advice pieces and tools that are all free at the point of use, and I think it would it's fair to say that that DFE genuinely want to support the sector with these tools and there's quite a lot of um, consultation that goes on I understand certainly I've been involved in bits of it and I know you've been involved in a lot of it um, to get these tools to the point where they are genuinely useful to the sector so I think if it's something that you're not using then I you definitely have a look at it but particularly from from the panel session what was really interesting was to hear how how people interpret some of the guidance and the tools that are there in different ways and some can embrace the idea that this is definitely something that I want you know I, I, I can use and it's there to support me and others feel that it's a way of sort of you know looking at looking at how how is your school managing is you know submitting data etc etc but I think for me there's a line straight down the middle which says if this is something that DfE are putting out and they are effectively supporting, even if it's only guidance or signposting, they're supporting the, the, the tools, then it makes sense to understand what, how, what and how you can use that for in your school. Because if you're going to have to, to at some point, have a conversation with a, a member of the ESFA team or the Department for Education team, you know, you want to have a better understanding of how they will be viewing the information that you are submitting about your school. And I think there's a huge value in that. You may go off and, and do something in a slightly different way, use a different tool, and that's all fine. But I think it's really worth being aware of, of the, um, the frameworks and the, and the tools that are available on the DfE website. One, because they're free, and two, because you know that the department have got an understanding of how they work, and I think that's useful. I completely agree, Julia. And I've had um, after the session, I've had a couple of uh, a couple of members get in touch with me. Particularly, um, one of the points that we discussed was benchmarking and benchmarking data. The frustration with the length of time that it takes to update it, but also um, the some frustration with how that that data is um, how it's loaded into the system and then how it's. Um, pushed back out into that transparency data and, and a couple of people have sent me about examples to say look this is the data that we submitted 
this is what's showing on the benchmarking tools this th there's some disparity here so i think what is really, really helpful is when members get in touch with us via the, the tellus at askall.org.uk email address to give us that granular feedback because mm. that's really, really useful information. Like you say, we have we do a lot of work and we're regularly in stakeholder meetings with the department and, and, and the civil servants from the school's resource management portfolio. And that's the sort of information that they want to hear about in order to keep um, improving these tools and, and investing in them. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, so given that we, you know, we've we've laid out a, a range, vast range of, of tools and resources that are available. That's all very well, but when you're that person, that leader in school, I mean, I know Haley, you have you you work with with business leaders all of the time. Could you give give us a sort of um, a, a summary of what the concerns are at the moment, particularly related to schools resource management? I've got a feeling I know what one of them is going to be. Yeah, I, I think you might too, Julia. I think there's a there's been just a huge number of members getting in contact with us at the moment to talk about the the rising energy prices, and I don't mm. I don't think that's going to come as a shock to you or as a shock to listeners. It's just it's the it's the size of, of the concerns. I mean, for example, some of the contract values, just, just to give you an idea that we've heard about, for example, for going from £10,000 to £70,000, from £65,000 to £200,000. I mean, these are just incomprehensible rises. But I think the other thing that we, I wanted to pick up on, and I, and I think from a, from a business leader's point of view, when they're getting in contact with us, they're really worried about the budget planning and they're really mm -hmm. worried about the, the contracts and the costs. But there's also there are also other really important issues linked to this as well. I mean, um, something that's very important to, to you and I, and I know you'll be picking up on is the funding to bridge the gap. Mm. I think there's very much a sense that there's a lack of recognition by ministers on this i think i think the sort of the impact of the ongoing uh, russia ukraine conflict as well i think there's a real moral imperative for people that that are concerned about that element of of contracts we, we've seen that the school switch service is also ending on the 31st of march and uh, from what i understand that um perhaps hadn't worked as well as it could have done and it's it was decided a little while ago that that's contract would end at its at its end point but i think it's just unfortunate that it's come at a time when there's so much flux within the within the energy market i think members are also really concerned about future knock-on effects now as well of prices rising so as those energy prices rise uh, the, the, then it's, it's likely to be we'll see food prices rise fuel prices rise those sort of things which are they going to have a knock-on effect for things like um cleaning and catering those sorts of things when we're when you're purchasing uh, items that aren't on a fixed contract value where you're buying them at the market price of the, of the point of purchase I think people are really concerned about that and then I, don't, I really don't think we can forget as well the personal impacts on household income as well and I think some of the school leaders that I've spoken to are particularly concerned for their support staff who are on lower pay where their income is already very very squeezed and we're already that those school and college leaders in some circumstances and we're hearing about this more and more that they're struggling to recruit to support staff roles so for example teaching assistants uh, catering team cleaning team um, admin support IT support those sorts of roles because there are um, 
better pay, better conditions on offer in different sectors that we've got. There's a number of concerns and I'm sort of badging them under energy, but they're much broader uh, moral and national concerns, I think, Julia. Mm, definitely. Yeah, um, you've, you've raised many very significant points there. And I think my first response is... Um, a message that you would have heard me give very many, many times, and it's never been more important. It cannot be the responsibility of one person um, to uh, to take all of those um, very, very serious budgeting um, issues on. It's got to be a shared responsibility. And particularly, I think, when we're faced, as some are now, I know, because I've had a couple of more than a couple of conversations, where there is a contract that you feel you may not want to continue with for ethical reasons, but you are in charge of the public purse. You have got a commitment, which is going to, you know, you, you, you are going to have to make some tricky decisions about ending a contract midway through its run, those sort of things. You cannot make those decisions by yourself and you cannot feel pressured to do that. I know it's easy for us to sit here and say that, but please, you know, you need the support of your SLT and your trust board to help you uh, make those decisions and make sure that it's one that everybody is, is happy and comfortable with. Um, apologies for sounding like a broken record there, Hayley, but I, it, it's it's very, very pertinent at the moment. Um, in terms of lack of recognition by ministers, I think you mentioned, or by government, and this, this really is about energy, isn't it? And it isn't for the want of trying. We have been raising this issue, many of us across ASCO, uh, for some time. The way that the statistics look... Energy prices, energy costs are historically a fairly small portion of expenditure. And for that reason, there is a, a view that uh, schools should be able to take on some increases within the, the um, funding envelopes delivered via the spending review last year. Um, and yes... There is additional funding, but the rates of increase are so drastic that it stands to reason that if you are going to make that work, you have got to adjust expenditure elsewhere. So we're back to the sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul type, um, type scenario. So um, we will continue to raise that point and provide evidence to government. Yeah, that's that's as you say, Julia. It's something that that's been raised on a on a number of occasions, and I think I think it's I think it's really frustrating when we just we want to see it recognised that 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 this is a real issue. It's and, and and you were saying this this a minute ago about people not feeling that it's that it's just their responsibility. I sometimes think there's a big gap between. What's, um, what government think is happening in schools and what is actually happening. And, and I just allude to another issue. I was working with, um, with uh, our General Secretary, Jeff Barton, and um, our Director of Policy, Julie McCulloch, yesterday to put together um, anonymised case studies on the impact, ongoing impact of COVID, to put that information in a, in a very granular form across to the government. Because 
again, there's a huge gap in understanding of what they think is happening and what's actually happening on the ground. Mm, absolutely right. Absolutely it's just right. Not, it's just not right. And no. I think that's it's one of those things, we've, we've already mentioned it, but those uh, the feedback into the Tell Us inbox is just so, so important because we can put across those anonymised first-hand accounts and I, w I would say there's probably nothing more powerful that, that that we can use as specialists than those those first-hand accounts because that they do take those seriously. Yes, exactly. They they are always very um, keen uh, to receive um, every hard evidence effectively um, because you know our colleagues in the Department for Education are good people trying to do a, trying to do a good job, um, and they need as we all do evidence to support um, the, the proposals or the, um, uh, the proposals that, that they're taking to, to ministers. I think that's the, the other thing I wanted to mention as well is just that, that this, is being, this is being talked about at the highest level as well. So members' concerns uh, were raised directly with Nadeem Sahawi, the Secretary of State for Education. So he was at our annual conference, which was on the Friday 11th of March. He gave a keynote speech during the morning. And that was followed by a closed post-keynote session with our elected ASCO Council members. Um, and th those members were very much getting the points across about uh, the experiences and, and the, uh, the pressures of the energy prices and, and the contract mm. issues. And um, if anybody um, didn't catch that, um, our General Secretary, Jeff Barton, did a, a video at the end of the week on last Friday, which is available to view online. And Jeff talks about that uh, more and then obviously we're raising it to the civil servant level. So yesterday I was in a DfE stakeholder meeting um, and we were talking about some of the operational issues with them. And um, they were talking about that there, there, there had been a bit of a problem with the frameworks that they'd got available. But they're saying that those issues have started to ease over the last few days. And that's for uh, both for renewals and for new contracts. And the key piece of advice that I took away from them was that, that is advice not to go out of contracts uh, they say that the DfE and both the ESFA are supporting via casework and I think that something and I've already mentioned this but I'll flag it again is the newly launched get help buying for school service it's 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 not obvious to find if you go into the find a framework tool and you select energy at the bottom there's like a grayed out area and there's a, there's a button at the bottom to access that support. So obviously you're going to need your school or your trust or your college information to be able to log in and access that. Uh, but I think that's a really important uh, message. Please do keep telling us, but please do keep telling the ESFA and the DfE. Um, and we're raising other questions because one of the things that I was thinking about the other day, um, which we've posed as a question to both the Department for Education and the ESFA, is... We were talking before about the moral imperative that, that some of our members are feeling and particularly linked to the Russia-Ukraine conflict and some contracts that, that people may be part of. I was just thinking about if they do go down the route, and this is not something, I need to caveat by saying this is not something we're advising people to do, is if they made that penalty payment to get out of a contract, would that be viewed as a contentious or a novel transaction and that's something that we're waiting for some advice and guidance back on I don't know whether we'll get a response on that but I think those are the sort of things particularly if you're a CFO that, that you're probably thinking about as you're dealing with this but I think just to say we, we just absolutely recognise just how difficult this is for members um, at the moment but I mean, I'm feeling like I'm talking quite that this is, this is obviously such a such a difficult issue 
but I think um, that doesn't take away from when we were at conference, there was some very positive, supportive conversations. So we had some really interesting conversations in the panel about things like internal and external audit and some of the practitioners in the session were sharing their, their expertise. So I think as well, I, I just encourage people to, to if, if you feel comfortable, to get back out to your network groups and to your, your local events and national events because there's... I, I, I think we saw it as with being back with with our school and trust leaders just how valuable they find that time out of school to pick up some of these snippets of good practice that they can then take back and use in their own school and trust and that, that just how important that network and networking and professional development is absolutely agree absolutely agree that there's nothing like you know that those conversations that you have as you're moving um, you know, towards the coffee break or to the coffee machine and you're just reflecting on something you've just heard and testing someone else's understanding of it and it's a completely safe space conversation but there might just be something that you get out of that that proves to be incredibly useful and you probably wouldn't have asked that question on a remote session. There's there's definitely, um, um, a, you know, a, a a, a comfort I think in being with people um, and, and the networking opportunities to go with it so yeah definitely I would agree with that encouraging um, encouraging people to do that I mean within the, the realms of, of where we are with the pandemic of course now but uh, um, I think we, ne we need to try and get back out and talking to each other in the same room as much as possible I for one um, was um, felt very buoyed up by the experience of just being with people um, and uh, you know, talking a, a lot of you know difficult conversations about uh, funding and, and budget planning and things that you know it's hardly um, the the fun stuff but somehow just being able to to do it in person um, and and get a reaction and and feed off that is uh, is good for all of us I think it, it, it totally is Julia and I thought I'd just end by sharing as well if if uh, you've really enjoyed what we've been talking about we are planning to have a business leaders annual conference in the summer. We are working very hard behind the scenes to get the, the details and the timings um, and all of that sorted out to share with you as soon as we can. Uh, but if that is something that you are, you are interested in coming along to, please do contact pd.askall.org.uk to get yourself on the mailing list. Um, and Julia and I will very, very much look forward to seeing you at the conference if you can make it. Uh, in the summer and thank you so much for listening to us and we very much hope that Louise will be back with us next time take care everybody yes. thank you thanks Hayley thanks everyone the Askell Business Brunch